0: To story story night featuring starry story night libra i'm your host jody eichelberger starry story night draws connections between storytellers and the way we draw lines between the stars to form constellations normally our production is live on stage but this year the stories were edited together from interviews our storytellers are alex muibay nikki leonard rachel hakimiam emanaker steve eaton and stephen snow with the voice of interpreter lauren seal we begin with Dr. Lynn Owens, who shares her own story before becoming more of a narrator connecting the constellation. Now for stories that shine, it's story time.
1: The year was December, 1974. I found myself standing in a long line of students at the University of Maryland in the registrar's office. It was the week before final exams, my third semester. I have a sick feeling in my stomach. I have a piece of paper in my hand that I'd filled out. And with absolute disgrace, when I got to the front of the line, I slid it under the, the, yeah, under the tray there and the lady took it on the other end of it. And she just looked at me and she shook her head. And she, it was in triplicate and she stamped it. She ripped off my copy and she, she slipped it back under the tray and then she looked at me as if to say, there goes another one an absolute loser. At that moment, I felt like an absolute loser because by doing that and, and her stamping it and handing me back that piece of paper, what I had done was end a dream that had begun when I was seven years old. With that one moment, I had withdrawn from university. I basically flushed my future down the toilet and now I had to go home and tell my parents. I had grown up only eight blocks away from this university, University of Maryland, and I'd always wanted to go there and I'd wanted to grow up and be a teacher just like my dad. I'd made that decision when I was seven years old and now I have to go home, walk home and break his heart, telling him that I had quit school because I felt there was more dignity than waiting two more weeks and getting the pink slip that said, you have failed out. I was already on academic probation. So, on that walk home, several things occurred to me that really broke my heart. I walked slower and slower as I thought through this. The first was that nobody really knows. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows my reality. Um, Now, granted, I didn't really want them to know my reality. I had a false front on my life portraying that everything was great when people would ask me about school, oh, it's going good. When they would ask me about the relationship I was in at the time, oh, it's fine. He's wonderful. When they would ask me about my extracurricular activities, oh, I was having a blast. And so as I was walking home, the fact that it occurred to me that nobody really knew my reality was really sad. So worse than the fact that nobody knew me was that I felt that nobody cared. Nobody cared enough about me to sit me down and tell me the truth that I was screwing up. And I thought, well, who are these people that don't seem to care for me or care about me enough to tell me the truth? I thought about my parents, but the reality was I'd moved out of the house three semesters before. I'd only moved eight blocks. I didn't have to move across the country, but I became somebody that I didn't even know myself to be. Moved into sorority, had to have a good time, but that was to the demise of my academic life. So My parents didn't seem to care. All the mail came to me. They didn't see my grades, so... I didn't really give them any information that would allow them to care a lot about me. And so I just felt that they didn't care. My siblings didn't care. We were living in the same house at the time, uh, in and out, but they all had their own lives, so they didn't notice. Um, But the ones that really bothered me were that none of my academic professors or lab assistants or advisors, none of them sat down and said, what's going on with you? Where have you been? Um, you just failed another exam. You haven't handed in your paper. You haven't been to class in three weeks. None of them seemed to notice. Um, and I remember thinking I felt invisible. Um, nobody knew me and nobody cared. Um, I always wondered why they didn't. Um, I just thought that teachers were supposed to care. I had really caring teachers when I grew up through elementary school, middle school and high school. And now I just felt invisible. Um, Nobody would even wake me up when I fell asleep in the middle of a lecture. So it just felt like nobody knows and nobody cares. And it felt horrible. And as I walked down the hill to my house, occurred to me before I walked in the door was, if I ever get it together, if I ever go back to school, if I ever become a teacher, I don't ever want one of my students to feel what I'm feeling now that nobody knows them, and nobody cares about them. I walked in the door. I broke my parents' heart. It's twice in my life I saw my father weep. That was the first time. That dream was dashed. It took another 18 months, a bunch of uh, continually bad mistakes, getting fired from three jobs in 18 months, because I still couldn't quite figure it out and get it together. But I never lost that thought of, I don't want Ever, if I become a teacher, I don't want any of my students ever feel like I don't know them and I don't care about them. So once I did get it back together and I did go back to school and I did become a teacher, what was important for me to remember and has been is that that seed was planted 45 years ago to become a teacher that would care for students. For, for my work to be about how to be teachers, how to be people that allow others to feel like we care. I like to think of each of us as a star with everyone we come in contact with orbiting around us. My name is Lynn Owens and I taught for 40 years. I'm a tenured retired professor I have multiple initials after my name and multiple degrees. I've been recognized as the teacher of the year 20 times in three different universities. I've recognized speaker, motivational speaker, author. I live in Garden Valley, Idaho on a 50-acre little piece of property here. I live with my husband, Bill. We've been married for 42 years. I have two adult children and five grandchildren. Starry Story Night. Each storyteller is a point of light, and we connect their stories together in the way we draw lines between the stars to form constellations. Let's meet our storytellers. As education is such a huge part of my own story, let's begin by hearing about what part education has played in your lives. Alex, why don't you start?
2: Where where I and my family used to live, uh, it was tough to go to school because uh, life was really, really hard. It was really difficult, man.
3: So I grew up in Idaho, in a small town
2: called Gooding. grew up uh, in a small village, Kocatello, which is where I'm from.
4: I grew up living between Suriname, and Moscow, Russia.
3: I went to the Idaho School for the Deaf and Blind there. And it was nice because my home was really just a hundred yards away from the school.
4: My home was mixed culturally, um, Armenian and American.
2: Malawi, Zalik camp. It's a refugee camp. I
4: ended up volunteering at a women's shelter in Kabul, Afghanistan.
2: When I came to Boise, I I felt welcome. You know, I felt like my life was going to change. I started going to school. I, I graduated from high school.
4: And I graduated from high school in Moscow, Russia.
5: I dropped out of high school in 1965 because I had a chance to go down there and and meet with an agent. No one in college.
4: I started undergrad as a pre law student, uh, emphasis in history as well. And then I ended up going the route of art and becoming um, a fine arts student. And I graduated with my Bachelor of Fine Art in painting.
3: I went to Gallaudet University, which is the only deaf university in the world and that is located in Washington, D.C.
6: So I got a master's degree in fisheries and um, that led me to the career that I'm just about to finish up, actually. I retire next month. Um, It led me to this career of being a fisheries biologist for the National Marine Fisheries Service.
1: In Greek mythology, the earth began in a golden age of peace and harmony. The gods wandered the earth with the humans, Estrella ruled with her scales of justice, which were always in balance. Everyone belonged. But things began to change. Humans separated themselves and created the other. They became violent and greedy. They stopped communicating with each other. They lost empathy, and the scales tipped. The gods left the earth and fled into the heavens. all except Estrella. She alone wandered the earth in search of goodness.
5: One day, me and myself and my producer went over to a and Records, which was the Carpenters' label.
2: I, I went for
5: a tryout for soccer.
6: Well, when I was growing up, at my age, people didn't play soccer.
2: And then I started trying out. I didn't speak anything. I, I couldn't speak English at all.
3: We communicated predominantly through translators oh, that's right, I'm deaf and I'm surrounded by people who can hear, who communicate in a different language and who we often have communication barriers with.
6: We didn't play soccer. Um, I don't, oh my gosh, I don't really understand all the rules.
5: I didn't know even how it worked. I didn't know anything about publishing. I, I knew nothing. So when, when we were playing
2: soccer, trying out for varsity team at Borough High School, and then uh, I remember the the third third day of trial uh this one guy uh, called me a uh, animal name a monkey He said a monkey can't play soccer
3: There are other people that believe that deaf individuals like myself in a way are subhuman, that we don't belong in the overarching society or that we can't do everything that people who could hear can.
6: Feeling outside for so long, knowing that I would be an object of ridicule or an object of hate for being who I am, just, you know, who I am, just another dorky person
5: We asked him specifically, uh, if they were looking for songs for the Carpenters, they're already finishing an album they've got all the songs picked. I was, I went crazy. Like my reaction was
2: why why would he say that, you know? Why, why would he say that? For what reason?
5: I said, well, can I leave the tape here? And he said, sure, you know, you can leave it. So harassment
4: in Moscow took a lot of different forms. Um, For me personally, it was a lot more just like sexual harassment Um, So from the time I was a young girl, maybe like, you know, 10, I would get the very um, sexual comments at me as a kid walking through the streets. And then as I grew up, it would get worse or like, you know, getting groped
3: or having somebody follow you. I interact with a lot of different people in my position. And some people I just have to kind of roll my eyes and uh, just continue to smile because there are people, unfortunately, who are very ignorant
2: I tried to calm down, but I couldn't. I went and talked to the coach. Hey, coach, did you hear this and that? The guy called me a monkey. I can't play university team. How can a monkey
5: make university team? I laughed at it, and I know he didn't. he didn't listen to it. Don't hear me and don't understand me.
3: Um, I would say sometimes I get the deer in the headlights reaction.
2: And the coach was like, this is why I canceled the practice. But we're gonna have to talk about it. i was like coach i'm not doing this i'm done i'm not gonna play soccer like i'm done like, take your jersey take your plates i'm done
1: Astra too was done disappointed in humanity she left the earth but didn't join the other gods in heaven instead she flew into the sky to become the constellation virgo the scales she brought with her became the constellation Libra. She looks back on the earth with the potential to come back and rule over a second golden age, should the scales tip again. Until then, she is gone.
5: You know, my sign is is Libra and, and I'm supposed to be um, they, they show a, a picture of the justice. It looks like the justice person holding up the, the, um, the scales. And then, you know, this, the scales are supposed to be balanced. And being a Lib- Libra is, is uh, somebody that likes to have everybody be okay, you know. And uh, I'd like to think that about me. I know I always want everybody to be okay.
3: On September 11th, it just felt like any other morning to me. I drove to work and came into my office and just got ready for the day.
2: I remember one night, uh, we we were just having a a dinner with my family, I and my family. And uh, that was in Baraka, Congo.
3: While I was at work, there was a colleague who came into my office. And they said that I needed to check out the news. So I went over to the center of the building. what was the atrium where there was a large TV and myself and staff uh, gathered there. And of course, back, back in this time, it wasn't a flat screen. It was one of those bigger TVs.
6: And my family, we were sitting on the couch and we were watching Get Smart. And Maxwell Smart was giving out awards to control agents. And he gave out this award to... Uh, Dr. Sven Lundström, or some very masculine name, for best research into hormones. And of course, this drop-dead brunette gets up to accept her award. And Maxwell Smart's idea eyes got about this big. And he says, good job, Dr. Lundström. And I'm sitting on the couch, and my eyes are about this big. And I'm like, going, oh, my gosh, look what they could do. I had no idea.
3: So we saw the news. And... Honestly, I just thought, wow, that seems like a very large hole for a small plane. But honestly, I didn't even think much of it then, even after seeing that footage. So I went back to my office. And later on, I just wanted to check to see if there had been any updates. And during that moment, that is when we saw the second plane hit. And at that point, I knew this was not an accident. This wasn't something minor, it had to be something else. Unfortunately, I didn't know what was going on at that time. We could see the footage of helicopters uh, around the World Trade Center and we were watching that live. Myself and my colleagues began to talk about what was going on because we weren't getting the information about what was happening. So when that second plane hit, it was about 9 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Time.
2: When we were having a dinner, it was around 9, 9, 9 p.m.
3: I remember talking with my colleagues about what could possibly going on.
2: Soldiers came from nowhere.
3: And unfortunately, the news uh, did have newscasters talking about what was going on, but those were not closed captioned, which meant that we as deaf individuals, as deaf adults, didn't know what was going on.
2: They just came and then attacked my family.
3: Once in a while, there would be some information written on the screen, but there was a lot that we were missing. It wasn't until we had a colleague who could hear who came into the room and said that they heard that uh, there was another plane that was headed for DC. And at that moment, we began to panic we couldn't imagine what that would be like, and honestly, we had those worries, like what if a plane hits the building we're in, um, but I, we thought then, no, that couldn't possibly be, there wouldn't be a plane coming for a university of deaf people, why would they target us?
6: Did it makes me feel like people are out to get me. And we, I, I
2: didn't know why they came and attacked us, because we didn't have any problem with nobody. They just came from nowhere.
3: But then someone said that the plane had been hijacked. So I think that was probably around 9 20 that morning. 9
2: 30, 9 45. And
3: we still did not have the information that we needed. I remember looking to another colleague, and it was at that point that we decided all right, we need to get some more information about this. Let's see what's going on. So we went up to the top of a dorm room at Gallaudet University. So we went to the top floor to see if we could get a better vantage point of what was going on. And that dorm has a beautiful view of the whole city of Washington, DC. We could see the north end of Washington, DC. We could see the Washington Monument and the Capitol from that view. Um, So the Pentagon was a little further off, but we could see it in the distance. So it normally is a very beautiful view. I remember looking out at that and we saw planes go by, and we kept thinking, is that, is that plane going to hit something?
2: They just came inside and then stopped punching my dad, stopped punching me, stopped punching my other two siblings, stopped punching my mom.
6: It's a matter of safety for me, where I automatically assume that something's happening it's because I'm transgender. Is that going to... Crash into a building,
3: so we kept our eye on that. And at about 9:30 is when we saw the smoke.
2: Hi, my sibling, seeing all that, like your parents getting embarrassed in front of you, it it was hard. It was just something that I don't think I'll ever forget in my whole entire life. Entire I die, I don't think I'll ever forget that.
3: I will never forget that moment of seeing that smoke. It was just this dark looming column. Uh, Then we went down from the dorm room to a more public area and it was confirmed on the TV that a plane had hit the Pentagon. I will never forget how shocking that was. And that is really when the confusion started on campus. There was not enough information getting out. And since we were so close, we didn't know if we needed to evacuate. We didn't know if there was going to be another plane that would hit the White House. The women
4: at the shelter were predominantly older women from various parts
6: of Afghanistan and Pakistan.
2: They, they, they took my mom inside my daddy's bedroom.
6: Somehow we ended up in my bedroom.
4: And it was the summer in Kabul, which is incredibly hot. So the room was hot.
6: And it was messy because that's the way my bedroom always was.
4: And we were on the second floor in this just like plain white drywall room.
6: And my dad's yelling at me. He's like, I think you're a sissy. Look at your room. It's a mess. You're a sloppy person. You're sloppy with your relationship with your parents. You're sloppy with your relationships with your family, with your friends. And you're a sissy.
2: They took her there with five five soldiers, and then they started having sex with my mom inside the house.
6: And I was torn to pieces. I was just ripped to pieces.
2: It was just, I couldn't imagine that it was happening.
6: And all of
4: them had lived a life where they'd seen cruelty I cannot even begin to understand
2: literally in front of me seeing my mom getting ripped.
4: for roughly an hour there were a few awkward words shared between us some in english some in Dari, um, but not much more than that in that moment i wished i could communicate and say something but i felt unable to either from the language barrier which was there or i didn't know how to start a conversation or simply i felt foolish I was looking around the room trying to find something to, you know, lock my eyes on and engage with. All the while, I had just a thousand thoughts running through my head. I wanted to say things. I wanted to talk. I wanted to, you know, ask her questions. And I had heard some snippets of her story before from the head of the shelter, and I knew she had heard some of mine. But besides that, most of our interactions had been pretty quiet um, smiles here and there. She didn't make a lot of eye contact uh, with most anyone, really.
3: We realized at that point that they were hitting a lot of iconic buildings and monuments in the United States, and that's really when the panic struck in. And most of that was because we didn't have immediate access to communication. People who could hear that day got a lot of their information through the radio. And we didn't have any of that.
6: Yes, there's no inter- there was no internet while I was growing up. So there was no source of information.
3: So we asked our colleagues who could hear if uh, they would keep us up to date. So we had them listening to the radio and filling us in on what was happening. And it was at that point that they had evacuated the White House, and of course, As everyone remembers, we had a lot of misinformation that day too, so there was a lot of chaos. And it was at that time that they began evacuating the city.
2: They all left after about two hours.
3: Most of our staff and faculty began to consider how they could evacuate and get home. And most of the time, you would think that we would evacuate through the subway, but a lot of that was shut down. Um, Well, actually, we thought that it was possibly shut down. But we didn't know, again. No one told us if that was the way to evacuate. And of course, back in this time, this was before the day and age of technology, like like text messages. So that wasn't a reliable uh, way to communicate either. So it was through word of mouth that we finally were able to gather students and staff in the gym at Gallaudet University.
2: I oh, like, what should we do now? You know, where I decided, and- start telling my parents that we can't stay here, you know, we can't stay here, we have to go somewhere else.
3: And we were able to set up a plan to get students and staff off of campus via carpooling and other routes. So fortunately, I had my car there that day. Um, so I was able to get out that way.
2: So we decided to run away. You know, we, we didn't want to die. Maybe they could have come back and killed everyone in the family but we didn't want that happen so we had to uh we had to to run away
3: we didn't know what routes we could take a lot of the roads were closed
2: right we didn't know where we're going so we started going and going we started walking walking while my mom was crying she couldn't walk because she was just tired and she was just bleeding all over and then i was carrying my sibling on the back
3: I remember getting out of campus, and the traffic was horrendous. And fortunately, we, we got out of Washington, D.C. safely, and I was able to drop off those other three people that were with
2: me. But we made it. We met in Malawi, we got there. Uh, we started. It was a new life. You know? started there, we settled, the refugee camp welcome us. We started alive.
4: I wanted to solve it somehow, as if I um, ever could. I don't know if I was feeling pity or just anger at the world and how cruel it could be, how it could take somebody's will to create, to think, or to be. But that's not empathy. Empathy.
2: What does that mean?
4: So out of nowhere, she grabbed my hand while we were sitting together and I was feeling, you know, awkward and maybe uncomfortable. And she just held it tightly. And she looked me in the eyes and she kind of just looked at me and acknowledged me and smiled. That's all. Um, This act of kindness and the feeling of being seen was incredibly powerful to me. It created a bond between us um, without language. She chose to stop, to acknowledge me, to be present in this shared moment, and to look me in the eye. And her feeling empathy for me, which in turn allowed me to feel empathy for her. So here we are in the middle of Kabul, an 18-year-old and a 50-year-old widow. I come from a Christian home. She comes from a Muslim one. We don't speak the same language. We don't have the same passport or access to opportunity. But in that moment, none of it mattered. We're just two humans sitting together, holding hands and seeing each other. conception of the other is an earlier work i actually made it five years ago Um, and the whole title and the whole premise of this work is playing with religious um, imagery and then kind of talking about some of the current events happening around Uh, at that time there was a lot of refugees conversations on refugees and immigration and different things so conception of the other is um, an image of the madonna and child in batik and very abstracted but actually playing with the birth of another, the other in our society that doesn't look, believe, and think exactly like us, but still being born almost to the Madonna um, as a child of God. Um, And how do we think about them? And how do we react to them? And how does our discourse around them
3: Unfortunately, many deaf individuals, especially young deaf children, live in homes where no one else knows sign language. So they are isolated much of the time. And people who can hear are finally experiencing that through uh, the lockdowns and quarantine that we've experienced.
6: It's especially bad for young trans people because nowadays kids seem to figure it out when they're like four years old and they go to school and all they want to do is to be accepted in their gender. That's it, that's it. There's no weirdness about it, you know? And yet the legislature finds ways to create a hateful environment for these kids.
3: At Gallaudet University, I honestly didn't see myself as a deaf person, because everyone at Gallaudet used sign language. It just felt like normal to me. There were no communication barriers. When
2: I was in the camp, I didn't know anything about that, about Black Lives Matter now.
3: I remember the first time that I realized that I was deaf was when I stepped outside
6: of that campus.
2: I went for a tryout for soccer.
6: So when I was in Thailand, where I got my surgery, and I'm watching TV, and there was very limited TV that was in English, and I would be watching these soccer matches.
2: That's that, that's, that's, a, that's where my experience started, when that happened at, at the tryout.
6: There was this English fellow who was in the same hotel that I was at, and I kept asking him to explain what was going on, but I have to admit, I'm still clueless about the rules of soccer.
2: And then... I started studying and looked up, doing websites, mm-hmm. doing research about it, how racial,
5: holiday season, and all that stuff. You know, all this racism and stuff is going on. I would look. I look back to like uh, back in the '60s when they had groups like Peter Paul Mary and Mary and Pete Seeger and all these people that were singing these um, these songs. You know, some people call it protest songs. I want to
2: understand for every, like, not only my skin, I'm standing for my family, my black African people. You know, I talked to my parents about it. My parents didn't like it at the beginning because they thought I would be killed, you know? They thought I will be like, they were telling me that if you start doing that, you're gonna get killed. You're not, you can't be joining the politics.
6: The Idaho legislature, as everybody knows, passed two bills. They're basically anti-trans bills in their last session.
3: So during 9-11,
6: that was the moment
3: that really impacted that beautiful bubble that was home to me. There were staff and faculty who were hearing, uh, who had information before we did. And that felt unfair in that moment. I wanted to be able to have that same communication access that everyone else did during a crisis
6: it's phenomenally hateful it's it makes it makes all of us in the trans community feel unincluded it makes us feel disenfranchised from our society
3: it was at that point that i felt disconnected and like i didn't belong um i wouldn't necessarily say just with gallaudet but with the world i just felt like i was being left out the thought that came to mind was, why does the United States not have a system in place that protects people like me in times of emergency? And I wanted to see our leadership uh, commit to ensuring that deaf individuals would be safe
6: in times such as this.
2: I started doing all the research and all that stuff.
6: All of a sudden, when you have the internet and you have all these trans people start posting their stories on the internet and sharing their information and setting up support groups that you could find a support group finally. That was revolutionary for me. Actually, um, I had never heard the word transgender until I found the internet. It was like, oh, I don't know what this means, but I think it's me. And it was just like this whole valley of information all of a sudden that I could learn about myself and learn of ways to connect with others.
2: When I did my speech uh, my at uh, Boise Hall, and then they saw that on the TV, my parents were so happy when they saw me on the TV. They were like, what? How did you do that? I was like, just, I wanted to, you know, make it different. You know, I know, I know, my parents didn't want me to do it, but I forced myself because I'm, I'm that person who always want to make it different, who always there for people, you know. And then my parents are really proud of me, and I'm still doing it right now, and they're, they're like happy with me. I think uh, after.
5: I did the speech at Boise Hall. Maybe after the song had been on the radio, it was like, it got up to number like three or four on the charts. Um, and that was worldwide.
2: Uh, my video went vile. It went all over. And then the next day, I, rece- I received so many messages from different people that I wasn't expecting. And... That was the most thing I ever felt. It was something I felt really, really good.
6: We went to this Denny's. It was on, it used to be on Fairview near downtown. And so we're at this big table, and there's myself and my nine-fingered cross-dresser friend. And there are a couple of drag queens. And there was this one drag queen, and she was tiny. And she was so beautiful. And she was there with her partner. And we were laughing and laughing and carrying on. And everybody in the restaurant was staring at us. And I didn't care. I could have cared less, because I was finally with my people. I belonged.
4: I hope my art can be a bridge to seeing and feeling.
7: And if I- Nature will help survive Every soul born into this world Is somebody's love inside Whenever a heart gets broken And the hurt and the pain won't end build us a bridge of kindness to cross with the help of a friend when the words of the wise are spoken do we really take them to heart let's build us a bridge together and now is the time to start Whenever a heart gets broken and the hurt and the pain won't end, let's build us a bridge of kindness to cross with the help of a friend.
6: The scales tipped for me when...
3: The scales tipped for me when bad recognizes good.
2: The scale tipped for me when I got all these positive messages.
6: Well, of course, the scales tipped for me when I found the internet. The scales tipped for me
4: when I was able to be seen and see somebody else.
6: Part of being transgender and being in the closet was that I tried as hard as I could to be a guy's guy.
5: And another one of the songs I wrote for that, that, um, that record was a song called All You Get From Love Is a Love Song.
6: And the Carpenters were of course very sentimental. Mm-hmm. Like sailing on a sailing ship to no Very sentimental Love music. And so like an I used ship. to pretend to hate the carpenters.
5: I like I like I like pop music a lot. That one day I got a check in the mail for like oh, oh, over 25000 dollars <laughs> I hadn't even I had no idea. I got that check and I looked at it and I thought, what is what is this, $25,000? So I take it across the street to my bank and I gave it to one of the tellers over there, one of the people that I knew, and I said, is this a real check? She goes, what are we doing for dinner?
6: <laughs> I actually loved their music. It was beautiful. And they could make me cry.
3: I would say... That we realize empathy when we experience something together.
6: Empathy is more understanding that we are a part of it all. And it comes to a pl- ends up coming to a place of compassion and truly having compassion for the world and having compassion for ourselves.
5: People that people that actually care about other people as much as they care about themselves or even more than they care about themselves or is, is the, to me a definition of empathy. To me,
2: empathy means to be there for someone.
4: Empathy to me in my understanding is when we're actually present and in- seeing and being with someone or something whether it's a piece of art or it's a person it's necessary to be present with it um, to truly see it and to stop and to just in that moment kind of go into it to be empathetic is to feel
1: with so if we feel with is one thing, but we have to act on that feeling to connect to that person, to help that person come alongside that person.
4: So in the Greek mythology of Austria, when she left and she took her scales of justice and it was kind of, I'll come back and start the next golden age. If you can show me some hope.
2: Uh, how can we show her already? I think, uh,
6: I think, order for her to return what we would have to demonstrate would be open hearts
3: so empathy like this so like one heart understanding another
4: often it's easy to focus on the very hopelessness of this world because there is a lot of cruelty and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of just injustice um, i think it's beautiful
3: that we have the Privilege to be able to choose how we react to things in our world, and that we only have control over ourselves. It's important that we understand and we value that opportunity to choose. It's at that point that I think, when we look at that and we realize that, that that's
4: when the goddess would return. But it's these small moments of connection, these small moments where we recognize each other's humanity, and where just unexpectedly care for each other um that show me that there still is hope and there still is beauty and there still is potential for things
0: thank you for listening story story night is funded in part by the idaho commission on the arts and the national endowment for the arts Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, podcast production by Stephen Baldessari. Starry Story Night Libra was commissioned for Boise State University's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Summit, hosted by the Blue Sky Institute. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.
7: It's time to build bridges together. And now is the time to start. Whenever a heart is broken, and the hurt and the pain.